My name is Dennis Durkin. Okay, and you said you're from Florida? I'm from Ocala, Florida, yes. And so, yeah, what you said you, you come out every four years, right? Uh, tell me why and why to New Hampshire. That's my colleague Renee Stranowski talking to 75-year-old Dennis Durkin. She pulled him and two of his friends aside as they were leaving a political event in Manchester, New Hampshire on Saturday. It was kind of exciting to come up here with two of my high school buddies and just uh, go around and experience the political system, uh, the way the candidates um, speak, the way the candidates uh, lie, the way the candidates promise things that they can't produce. And uh, it's just interesting to see what they have to say and how they say it. And I just got a feeling, uh, I know that I'm going to get a feeling that I'm going to land on somebody that is speaking truth to me. Dennis voted for Donald Trump in the last election. This time around, he was leaning toward Republican Ron DeSantis. I think that Biden, I think that Trump uh, would separate us and um, divide us. And that's what's tearing our country apart. So I'm looking for somebody that can unite us. DeSantis ended his campaign on Sunday. So now Dennis might go back to Trump or maybe Nikki Haley. She was terrific. I liked a lot of the things she said. Um, uh, she's probably pretty close to DeSantis. And if she got the nomination, I'd definitely vote for her. But um, um, for Dennis and a lot of voters, the New Hampshire primary is this rare chance to see our democratic process up close. You know, to be in a, in a situation when you can be 10 feet from people, you know, it's just exciting to me. I see them on TV and I kind of say, man, oh man, they're so, and, and to see what they look like in person, not all made up and, you know, makeup caked on and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty incredible. And I don't think we're going to get close to Trump tonight, but uh, just to be in the same room, never been in one of his rallies. New Hampshire's primary is on Tuesday, and what happens there could tell us a lot about how this election will play out. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Monday, January 22nd. Today on the show, we hear from people, both voters and reporters, on the ground in New Hampshire— my colleague Arjun Singh talks to Dylan Wells, a campaign reporter for The Post, about why this primary could be make or break for Nikki Haley on the Republican side. And later in the show, I talk to Arjun about the reporting he's done on the surprising drama unfolding on the Democratic side of the ticket. First, here's Arjun talking to Dylan. So... I know that we're here in New Hampshire. We're both in Manchester. You've been covering this primary. We're coming out of Iowa right now, and it seemed like the primary was kind of decided with Donald Trump getting that big win, just over 50% of the vote. But I know that there's something more to that. So we're here in New Hampshire. Why is this primary important, and how is it different? Well, for a long time, this race has really been about who is in second place and who is coming up next in the polls after Donald Trump. And in Iowa, that for a long time was expected to be Ron DeSantis. Who we should say dropped out. Yesterday. Yeah. I can't ask our supporters to volunteer their time and donate their resources if we don't have a clear path to victory. Accordingly, I am today suspending my campaign. Which was obviously a big moment he entered this race with really high expectations, was seen as a front runner. 
And he was all in on Iowa. That's where he was investing his time, his money, his resources. And so that state was viewed as very make it or break it for DeSantis. For Haley, however, that state has been New Hampshire. It's been where she's been performing best. Over the course of the campaign, she's gained momentum here recently. And public polling shows that she's been closest to Trump here than in any of the other states. And so for her, New Hampshire is a really critical moment, especially given after DeSantis suspended his campaign to see what kind of momentum she can get here Tuesday night. What is it about New Hampshire and the people here that Haley is speaking to and connecting with that she thinks that this is going to be her big moment? I think she has a really interesting coalition here in part because of the really large number of undeclared voters in Mm. New Hampshire. There's a lot of voters I talk to who may have considered themselves a Republican until Trump, and then they voted for Biden because they didn't want him in 2020. And now they're looking to go back to the Republican Party if they can find a candidate like Nikki Haley. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them say they're excited about her. But if it's a Trump-Biden rematch again, they might not vote or they don't know how they would vote. And so those are the types of voters she's been able to tap into here, in addition, of course, to some of the traditional conservative Republican voters you'd expect to be participating in a primary. Sure. But she has kind of an interesting group of people she's brought together. And recently, she's been a little bit attacked for that by her rivals who are saying that she's, you know— more responsive to Democratic donors or that Democrats are voting for her and that must be a sign she's too liberal, where Mm. she's turned that on its head and said, I care about winning. The Republicans have been consistently losing these elections, and I'm all about bringing new people into the party to help us win. So tell me a little bit about the people you've talked to who are planning on voting for Haley here. A lot of them are people that oppose Donald Trump and are trying to best strategize on how to block him from winning a second term. There's people like Eileen Kirk, who one of my colleagues spoke to at a rally, who said... She has a lot of the same policies and convictions, but she's not bombastic and she's not offensive and she's clear-eyed. And I think she can also take new information and change a position and not be stuck in a mold. And I think the world is changing, and I think you have to be able to change with it. So I I like the fact that she thinks, and is thoughtful. And another voter that my colleague talked to named Cluda Bartholomew, who is a law student, who said that she finds Nikki Haley to be more moderate-seeming on abortion and more reasonable. And I feel like Nikki Haley's um, kind of in the middle. Like, she's got some good points when it comes to, like, the way things should be financially and socially and her views on, like, you know, abortion, a woman's right to choose and stuff, which I think is really important. So I think as a fellow woman, she could, if she says some things that influence me, she could definitely sway me tonight. It's a refrain you hear a lot from her supporters because Haley, when she talks about abortion, although she has said that she would sign a federal ban, has not gotten into the specifics as much as some of her rivals in the race did and instead has personalized it and talked a lot about finding consensus in a way that has convinced even some pro-choice voters that I've spoken to that she is not as pro-life as Haley openly says that she is. It's kind of a weird Hmm. dichotomy. Yeah. There's also Democrats like Colia Siga who say they're super opposed to Trump and are participating in the Republican process here just to block him from winning the nomination. 
I'm going to vote for Biden. I know that that's going to happen, but I know that I have the option of voting in the Republican primary, and I'm pretty sure that I'm going to vote for Nikki Haley. Why is that? Um, I'd like to vote against Donald Trump. Since the Iowa results, Nikki Haley has also stepped up her attacks against Trump and has increasingly been tying him to Joe Biden, talking about how she can defeat either of them, particularly how far she leads Biden in hypothetical head-to-head polls and framing them both as being too old and repeating her calls for a new generational leader, even this week questioning Trump's mental fitness after he seemingly confused her with Nancy Pelosi. They're saying he got confused, that he was talking about something else. We can't have someone else that we question whether they're mentally fit to do this. We can't. And I've heard that from voters here in New Hampshire who say that they really don't want either Biden or Trump and are attracted to Haley because they think she's the only one who has a shot. My name is Levy Lomaski. This is my son, Alexander. Unfortunately, this year, I think senility will enter into it. Uh, I don't want a candidate who is senile. Um, and a lot of the, uh, the major candidates give me pause on that track. So when you go out and you see Haley, what's her style? What's her tone? How does she interact with people? She is very personable. I think we paid a lot of attention in this race to Ron DeSantis, how he came across when he first launched. He was seen as being kind of awkward or standoffish. Haley's kind of on the opposite end of that spectrum. Voters I talk to really love the way she interacts with them. She always is able to personalize an issue. She makes a beeline for the kids in the room, takes I, selfies I heard with them. Someone once say describe her as kind of having cool mom energy. Yes. <laughs> I've also heard that. <laughs> what does that mean exactly? I mean, she's really good about weaving in her personal experience to talk about, you know, controversial policies like her position on abortion and tying it back to her life experiences. I am unapologetically pro-life. Not because the Republican Party tells me to be, but because my husband was adopted and I had trouble having both of my children. So I'm surrounded by blessings. Having said that, I don't judge anyone for being pro-choice any more than I want you to judge me for being pro-life. She's good at kind of the banter you see on the trail, the one-liners in response to attacks from her rivals, and she's very disciplined, so she tends to stick very on message, but for voters who are often seeing her for one time before the primary, it comes across very well in those rooms. She interacts a lot with the crowd at her events. If someone sneezes in the audience, she'll say, bless you. She prides herself on being the last one to leave the room and will wait there for, you know, upwards of an hour after an event, taking selfies and signing autographs for anyone who wants one. And then does that facade, though, crack a little bit, though, when she gets into the uncomfortable position of where the Republican base has moved. You know, I'm thinking about one article that our colleague Meryl Cornfield had reported where Nikki Haley had a lot of trouble answering a question about the Civil War in regards to slavery. What was the difficulty that she was having and what did she say and how did she handle that? Yeah, well, because Nikki Haley is so disciplined, anytime that they're is something that she has to walk back that draws a lot of attention. So she was asked at a town hall. What was the cause of the United States Civil War? 
Well, don't come with an easy question or anything. I mean, I think the cause of the Civil War was basically how government was going to run, the freedoms and what people could and couldn't do. And in her response, she did not mention slavery at all. The next day, she immediately kind of reversed some of her answer and said, of course, slavery is part of it. I thought he was talking about kind of a forward-looking answer that he wanted and, you know, has then since referred back to her life growing up in Bamberg, South Carolina, a very small town. She talks about being Indian American in a very racially divided town and says, of course, I talked about slavery growing up. Of course, that was part of conversation. Like, I thought that was obvious. But that wasn't obvious to a lot of people who heard her answer there. And so she got a lot of flack and pushback, both from within the party and from Democrats and outside observers, about how she handled that question. But at the same time, she says things like, America is not racist. And if you go back to her time when she was governor of South Carolina, and I know you authored a really great article about this, she used to say that she experienced a form of racism. I don't know if that was the exact word she used, but she told stories about having trouble fitting in when groups were segregated between black kids and white kids. And she was told sometimes that people didn't know where she belonged. How has Nikki Haley transformed since that period? And, you know, is that a little bit of a tale of how she's going to try and find her footing as this GOP primary continues? Absolutely. I think she's trying to present this really positive vision of America that at times doesn't necessarily align with things that even she has said she has experienced in her life. She was the first female minority governor in the country. And as I mentioned, growing up in rural South Carolina, she notes that she's experienced discrimination in her life and that her family has as well. Um, But in her stump speeches now, she says that America is not a racist country, and she's explained some of those comments recently when pushed on them by saying that she doesn't want any little kids of any race to grow up thinking that they're different just because of their race or that they're set up disadvantaged because of something like racism. So she's obviously faced some pushback on that as well, but it's interesting to see kind of how she's transitioned and how she's talked about race over the years which has been informed in part by the fact that she is running to be the Republican nominee for president. And when you look at the base of Republican voters who are voting in this primary, they tend to be older. They tend to be whiter. It tends to be a less diverse group of people. So then on the other side of Haley here in New Hampshire, you're going to have former President Trump. In the last week or so, I know a number of candidates have dropped out. Asa Hutchinson, Vivek Ramaswamy, Ron DeSantis, and... People are coming out and they're starting to support Trump. So what is Trump's play in New Hampshire and what are you hearing from voters here? Trump is still very much the leader in the polls here. He is the dominant figure in the race. So as much as Haley has momentum here, it's still a really uphill battle for her. And as you mentioned, Donald Trump has just had a complete show of force here in New Hampshire, bringing out his former opponents in the race to endorse him here, bringing out South Carolina legislators and the governor and Senator Tim Scott, who are all people that Haley has close ties to from South Carolina who are backing him instead. And he held a huge rally here and has had a lot of his surrogates here on the trail for him. Nikki Haley wants to live in a world where we raise the gas tax in America, but become the block captain of Ukraine. He's had people here like Matt Gates, the Florida congressman who was here at an event on Sunday. 
we can do better than that. And our movement is the exciting one and the energetic one. Like, I see a Nikki Haley event in New Hampshire, and it looks like the size of a mediocre homeowners association. Right? So what are people here saying about Trump? People here still really like Trump. They view him as being charismatic and funny, and they miss kind of his personality in the White House as chaotic as it might have been in their eyes at times. Um, they view him as someone who is really fighting for them. And I think that his indictments have only increased that sentiment among his supporters. And they remember the economy under his presidency and give him credit for that. They cite how things were before COVID, and they want to go back to that kind of environment. So say Nikki Haley comes out with a victory here in New Hampshire. What happens next? Because this is just one state in the series of primaries. What does a path to victory look like? Haley has said she doesn't need to come in a particular finish here. She just needs to be stronger than she was in Iowa. Hasn't really defined exactly what that will look like. She has said that regardless of what happens here, she plans to go on to South Carolina, which is her home state where she served as governor. Um, She's already announced that she plans to be there Wednesday for a big rally event kicking off the next three or so weeks of that primary. But it's unclear what things are going to look like after Tuesday when we get these results. And I think that the numbers that we get here out of New Hampshire will be a signal, at least, of her strength in taking on Trump, now that it really is a two-person race. But as far as she and her team say, she's in this for the long run, is planning to keep campaigning. Well, Dylan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you so much for having me. Dylan Wells is a campaign reporter for The Post. She spoke to my colleague Arjun Singh in New Hampshire. After the break, we turn to Democrats, and I talk with Arjun about why President Biden is not on the ballot there and the tension that's causing. We'll be right back. All right. So, Arjun, you are in New Hampshire right now. And I want to turn to the Democrats for a moment because some interesting things are happening there, even though maybe a lot of people are thinking, well, President Biden is the incumbent. There's not going to be any drama on the Democratic side. But but what happened there? It's pretty interesting what has been happening here because New Hampshire by law, actually says that they need to have the first primary in the nation, not the first caucus. That's why Iowa went first. But Biden and the Democratic National Committee, however, did not think that that was such a good idea. President Biden is proposing a major change to the presidential nomination process. He says it's time to switch the order of which states vote first in the primaries. The case that they have put forward is that New Hampshire is a small state. It is not very representative of the nation. And what that would have had was South Carolina beginning first. Then three days later, New Hampshire and Nevada would hold their primaries. The plans elevate South Carolina's black voters, Nevada's growing Latino population, and gives earlier attention to two key battleground states. But the change is especially stinging to New Hampshire, which has held the first primary since the 1920s. 
that caused quite a bit of a ruckus here. So the New Hampshire Democratic Party went ahead and actually said, we are still going to hold a primary. We are the first in the nation. We're going to have it the same day as the Republican primary. Talk to a couple people who are New Hampshire elected officials, people who support President Biden. Um, can I just have you just do like an introduction, sort of mic test real quick? Sure. Uh, Congresswoman Annie Custer from the 2nd District in New Hampshire. Fantastic. Like Representative Annie Custer. So for me, what's special about the New Hampshire primary is that the voters here take the process so seriously to vet the candidates. She told me that even though she doesn't necessarily agree with the decision, she supports what President Biden is doing. Hey, folks. Talk to you a little bit about what I spoke to a state senator named David Waters. So I represent District 4, and that includes the city of Dover. He, in fact, just straight up told me that he thought the decision by the DNC is stupid. Well, um, a group of us decided once the DNC made its stupid decision uh, to not um, have this be the first in the nation primary, that we needed to show the support for the president. But he is also going to go ahead and support Joe Biden. We feel our democracy is at stake. And the answer to threaten democracy is more democracy. And that's what the New Hampshire primary is about. It's been around since 19... 19- so the reason that Waters and I were actually talking is because he was standing at an event that was a visibility event for a campaign called Right in Biden. This is the awkwardness of this primary right now. Because the DNC and President Biden did not endorse New Hampshire being the first primary, Biden's name is actually not going to appear on the ballot. So now a group of grassroots volunteers, including a super PAC that was formed, are now going out there trying to tell Democratic voters that they need to write in Joe Biden's name on their ballots to make sure that he actually does win the New Hampshire primary. Wait, wait, Arjun. So will this even count on a, on a technical level if the DNC isn't participating in this election? No, on a technical level, none of the New Hampshire delegates are going to be awarded. But there's still a lot of symbolism that's at stake here when it comes to the kind of enthusiasm Biden can bring out. And two candidates are actually challenging him in New Hampshire. There's Marianne Williamson and there's Dean Phillips. And if either of them can perform really well, even if they don't win any delegates from that, that could still give them a lot of momentum. But even though no delegates will be awarded, there is some drama here within the Democratic Party. There are actually two people challenging Biden in New Hampshire. So, Arjun, can you tell me about them? Let's start with the first one, Dean Phillips. Who is he? Where did he come from? And why is he running? Dean Phillips, he's a representative from the Minneapolis suburbs. Before getting to the House, he was a CEO of his family's liquor business, which has helped make him one of the wealthiest members of the House. He has a net worth of over $70 million, and two of the brands that he most notably ran were Belvedere Vodka, which you may have seen in Jay-Z videos, and then Talenti Gelato, the reusable containers with the layered ice cream that you've probably... That I've seen in my refrigerator. (laughs) That you've seen in your refrigerator, exactly. So before he ran for election to be president, he was a pretty normal member of the Democratic Party in the House. He voted for all of Biden's major legislative packages. He was a member of House Democratic leadership. But then he came out and he said that Biden really doesn't seem like he should be at the top of the ticket right now. He's concerned that Biden doesn't have a broad base of support. 
And that's kind of captured in the two themes of his campaign. So I actually caught up with Dean Phillips at his campaign office here in Manchester. He has a couple signs on his office. One says, everyone's invited. And I asked him, what does that mean? I flipped a district that hadn't been uh, Democratic since 1958 and beat a guy who had won by 14 points uh, that night. And we did it using a notion of invitation versus confrontation. Everyone's invited. And I listened to Democrats and Republicans and independents and libertarians, and I saw that our country is less divided than angertainment would have us believe. So our- More interesting to me, however, was the sign right underneath that, which has a picture of Joe Biden and said, why write him in when he'll write you off in reference to that Biden write-in campaign? So what he's referring to there is that New Hampshire isn't the only state where he had to kind of fight to get ballot access. Uh, Democratic parties across the country have been putting in Joe Biden's name and actually trying to make sure that the other candidates' names don't appear on the ballot. I respect the president, but I'm deeply disappointed in his unwillingness to simply answer the question about what's going on here. And he says that he has lost a lot of respect for the president himself. Mm. I wonder if now you can also just tell us about the other challenger in New Hampshire, Marianne Williamson, who is not an unfamiliar name to me. I mean, I remember when she ran the last time around in 2020 and, you know, she's a self-help author and has a sort of cult of personality around her. And I don't know, Arjun, I remember when this was a time when Democrats were really laser focused on beating Trump and reversing everything that the Trump administration stood for and represented. So this time around, what is she running on? Did you get a chance to talk with her? I actually did catch up with her here in Manchester with our uh, colleague, Rainy Svernovsky. Uh How long have you been up this morning? Uh, <laughs> Do your sound tests like that? Seven, I remember seeing seven. And we got to sit down with Williamson. So can I ask you, what is the elevator pitch for your presidency right now when you go out and talk to voters? That we need to end a chapter of American history, which basically saw a war on the middle class and poor in this country. So Williamson really is trying to inherit the Bernie Sanders movement. She thinks that Biden has not been a good faith negotiator with the progressives, and she wants to run on a very bold agenda. Mm -hmm. I want to give the American people a better deal. Medicare for all, tuition-free college and tech school, using the Higher Education Act to completely eradicate the college loans, subsidized childcare, paid family leave, guaranteed sick pay. And she, like Dean Phillips, has also railed against what she feels is an undemocratic process. That we will not defeat uh, Trump by simply offering more of the same. And we won't defeat him by telling people to be scared, be very, very scared. That's not motivating, that's not inspiring. If we lose in 2024, it won't be because people vote for Trump, it will be because too many more than that stay home. So Arjun, I also want to know more about where Democrats in New Hampshire stand on Biden, because you have these two people who are running against him. And in this primary that you said, you know, is is in some ways largely symbolic. But I, I do think that can tell us something about enthusiasm or lack thereof around some of the most involved Democratic voters. So what is going on in New Hampshire when it comes to President Biden? You mentioned a, a write-in campaign what did you see? Who did you talk to when, when you looked into that? So I'll start off by saying that when you do look at polling averages, Biden is the overwhelming favorite to win the New Hampshire primary. He's usually leading by around 60 percent averages, while Phillips and Williamson hover between 
5 to 15%. Now, that's not an insignificant amount of support, but it does also show that Biden, at least in polling, has an overwhelming advantage over them. Now, when I went to this visibility event, as they were calling it, where people were standing, holding signs, people were honking horns at them, all the signs read, right in Joe Biden, I tried to find people to speak with, and I talked to a handful of people. So you're a representative of the district. Are you also a politician? But almost all of them were either elected officials or they were heavily involved in hmm. the local Democratic Party in their town or they were involved with the Democratic State Committee. And as I'm going around Manchester and New Hampshire, you see a lot of the pomp and pageantry that you would for a presidential primary here. You see Trump signs, you see Haley signs, you even saw a couple of DeSantis signs. But I haven't seen a Biden sign. I see a couple Marianne Williamson signs around. I've seen a few Phillips signs. And so I think that it has raised an open question of will Biden, even with this write-in campaign, be able to mount enough support to show that he has a mandate to lead, not just that he can win in a contest, not just that he can get kind of first across the finish line, but that he has a real mandate to lead from his party. Well, Arjun, thank you so much for, for joining us from New Hampshire and equipping us for what we should be looking out for come later this week in these results. Yeah, thanks for having me. Arjun Singh is a politics producer for Post Reports. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Renny Svernovsky, Emma Talkoff, Arjun Singh, and Alana Gordon. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Maggie Penman. If you're looking for the latest updates on the big news of the day, check out our morning news briefing, The 7. We bring you the seven stories you need to know about every weekday morning by 7 a.m. You can listen to it wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.